0: Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth, or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. And this is the second of two episodes on the cantata, Aus der tiefen rufe ich her zu dir. So if you haven't heard episode 30, which was last week's, you should go check that out first, It gives a little bit of an intro, and Christian is is leading us through his favorite moments from each of the five movements here. We've already talked about two of them last week. We're going to talk about the rest of the three right now. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. In this third movement, we start with a very declamatory first line. I wait for the Lord. At the end of the movement, you have that last line. And in his word, do I hope. This is not quite my moment, but I do love that ending. The bassoon has gets something really interesting to do. Talked about how the bassoon part is usually not written out and it is here and you can kind of hear it in that background of this slow ending. Alex, you pointed out how you loved how the oboe goes up to a really high note at the end, unexpectedly. Very harmonically unusual to the way that oboe goes up to that same note that the bass note went down to. Kind of maybe not not so smooth and not something he might have done in his later years, maybe. yeah and it's just the remarkable thing too is that it sounds so much like it's going to just go down a half step like it's just that last little bit on the O is like that dah, 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 is where you think it's gonna go mm-hmm. and it's like oh well yeah it's like yeah and it's, it's in a higher range than what i just sang of course it's two octaves higher than i sang <laughs> it had gone down or three to that c-sharp it would have been perfectly legal you know, too too hmm. in terms of the voice leading it would have yeah and it would have actually it would have just doubled the tenor part on the c-sharp but yeah it's it's pretty cool it's it was just like a kind of an eye-opening moment for me if you guessed that this was the uh the moment i was going to pick for this one i got to give you credit but we're just off topic now because this actually isn't the <laughs> yeah. moment that I picked. Um, although I love the ending of, of this movement, my moment is that middle line we talked about. This text It's just three lines long. The middle line my soul doth wait but like boy does it wait like yeah, this extended middle section it just goes on and on and it really pulls at you in that respect the the setting of this text is very appropriate right in in baroque music and classical and all this stuff you could have a really short text and composers will keep repeating lines of it this is something that happens all the time you know mm-hmm. but here it's really appropriate like you say christian because of what it's about. Yeah. Waiting. So, my moment here is anytime uh, that this particular word, haret, to wait, produces in the harmony a very, very colorful and complicated harmony with the series of suspensions you've been following along from last week you know we're talking about we were talking about suspensions already and on the word weights or weight it's a very emotional line that steps down and st- and rhythmically is staggered meanwhile in the background we've got this wonderfully propulsive, Oboe and violas and violin going on, and a little bit of texture from the bassoon as well, and so the thing really moves. And it's not like you said, Alex, when we're watching the the video, it's not just doesn't. This is what makes it sound distinct from like just Renaissance. Vocal counterpoint. It's not just the voices. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of busy stuff that keeps it moving Yeah, to make it almost makes it feel impatient But as this fugue builds and as the voices enter all on the same line They all have that same sighing motif of waiting like still waiting and when they hit those notes on those beats that are so so stretchy and pressing yeah sometimes the result against the baseline and the harmonies is very interesting and it produces vertical sonorities that you would swear would be only found in jazz like chords that look like they contain a bunch of extra extended notes at the top sevenths ninths that kind of thing yeah But actually, it's exactly what Bach intended, and they always resolve correctly. And here are a couple of those favorite times that this moment happens. It's a little different every time, sort of like a kaleidoscope, right? It just moves on and on. Um, But here's a few. all of this the short answer of what's going on here is that harmonies can either be pleasing you know hollow and consonant or cloudy and complex and dissonant but if they are dissonant there's strict rules they have to resolve what's happening here is a resolution is happening at the same time as another dissonance is opening up so there's this chain of suspensions going on and the baseline moves through its own progression that's almost sequential We've talked a little bit about sequence, right, Alex? I think yeah, it was the Gipsmere yeah, episode. And a pattern that can continue to occur. And you can chain up suspensions this way. You can create a suspension chain uh, out of this that that the harmony can just keep moving. It's very effective. You can do it for a really long time if the musical theme calls for it. And this, this does. This yeah. is waiting, you know. Painfully waiting. <laughs> So the fourth movement, much like the second, it's a solo, for one voice, and a bass line, but also incorporates a hymn tune in the background. In this case, the soloist is the tenor,
1: and
0: the background is the alto voices singing that same hymn tune from before. But what's different is the meter. The other one, we, we spoke about the bass solo. It was in common time, 4-4, four, four. it was in the time signature of 4 beats per measure, those were divided into 16th notes, like we said. This one, the time signature is 12-8, it is in 4, but it's uh, gr- divided into 3. 1-2-3, 2 3 3-2-3, two, two, three, three, two, three, 4 2 three. So it is a beautiful tenor solo with that background hymn, that thing that Bach loved to do in his early days, which I wish he did more of in his later days, it's hard to complain about about Bach cantatas, but this was a thing that he did mostly in the early, these chorale fantasias, these early uh, cantatas. A Couple of remarkable things before I zero in on the moment. This tenor solo gets up to a high B-flat, a couple of them near the end, and the way this, uh, this singer... Charles Daniels, who performs this so beautifully, the way he approaches it is sometimes that B-flat is touched very lightly, that high note and sometimes, and one time, it is, it's loud
1: mm-hmm. yeah,
0: He always looks like he has such control over the instrument that is his voice, it's really nice to watch Well put But my moment is the beginning. I made Alex guess at all these, right? And this one was the most abstract and I'm going to make him do it on the air actually. Yeah. So Alex, I want to see if you can figure out and the listener you're on on for this ride as well. What's going on at the beginning pattern-wise is really interesting. So what happens first the baseline, right? Set up a, a baseline. And then it repeats, the voice enters, the line repeats. But there is something numerically unusual about this, which I absolutely love. I knew it was a little off kilter, I couldn't figure out why figured it out by looking at the musical score hmm. um it's a little bit hard to to uh, to do without that but it, you could count it out of course do you know what i'm talking about Alex? okay so i'm yeah i can make a guess here i think you're talking about how uh how everything is offset by two beats once the tenor comes in yeah exactly so the thing about a repeating bass line we've talked about repeating bass lines before they were a big part of this era of music you could improvise above them they became like a pattern. We called them the ground bass. Some musical forms have special names for that, like chaconne or passacaglia. We discussed the passacaglia by Bach, the organ passacaglia. Yeah, in episode five. And this has that similar thing where it has a repeating bass line, at least for a while. This bass line does not repeat actually in this movement uh, verbatim. It goes on and does its own thing. But for the first couple of times it happens, it does repeat. And that I'm just talking about the first two times or the pattern that those first two set up, which I think is what's the most interesting thing that's going on here. So there's four beats in each measure. So if you count this out, Alex, you said there was two beats missing. It doesn't actually seem that weird to say that I think there's two extra beats. Yeah, it's kind of a matter of perspective. Is it three measure, is it a three measure long pattern with two extra beats? Or is it a four measure long pattern with two missing beats? I think it's, that's. Both of those is not exactly the way to, to look at it. It's a three and a half measure pattern. <laughs> yeah. So, but what makes that interesting? So, so if you count it out, it's like one and a two, three, four measure. Two, two, three, four measure. Three, two, three, four measure. Four, two, and then it repeats. Three, four, one, two. So when I count it that way, it's actually a little bit confusing because there's four beats per measure. This pattern um, only makes it halfway to a measure. And so when you start the pattern over, you're starting on beat three instead of beat one. But that doesn't matter, really. It doesn't. It's kind of arbitrary. It is. This could have easily been in six, eight. And then how many measures would it be, though? Seven. Seven. That's what's so cool about this. Yeah. This music is, this music at a big beat length or phrase, small phrase length is in seven. You don't have music of this time period in grouped in seven. Think about uh, any song, any piece of music, just think about it. I bet you everything is grouped in four, even if the time signature is three. I bet you that the phrases in 95% of the music you thought of is in groups of four count out the phrases count out how many measures there are in each phrase it's probably two or four maybe eight yeah if it's another number if it's not a multiple or an exponent of two then that's unusual most things are four in music at that level yeah and or eight or 16 and this is seven which is so delightfully unusual i think yeah because of that i love this moment and i made this i made that uh my pick here. So I think it's better to think of it actually as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four,
1: five, six, Seven,
0: one, two, and so on. Yeah. And yes, the voice came in on number seven and not at number one, which I think in one way goes against my argument, but in another way, it's just an interesting layering effect. Really. Yeah, no, I don't think that, I think the bass definitely is doing what you're saying. And if the, if you want to call the, that entrance of the voice, if you want to call that really the first one, it is still seven it just means that's the first one and then you just your counting is offset by one but either way it's a group of 7 and like you said that is remarkable yeah you never see you never see those primes really 5s 7s 11s that are in this in this era of music definitely people have experimented since then but to structure something like that is so wonderfully experimental by this by the young bach you can really tell he was trying to do something a little different which i have to appreciate yeah. Here is that fourth moment. <music> For the fifth movement, the words are, Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all her iniquities. You get another declamatory introduction on the repeated word Israel, as if calling out that uh, to that nation which of course in the um, old testament is like the stand-in when people of this period of box period would have used this and people of the greater church today they use that to mean everyone right the church mankind people of god the people of god yeah that's what that's the broader term for israel we aren't we aren't talking about the modern nation of israel (laughs) right? right we're talking here actually about generally the people of god the music really picks up at that next line, Hoffa auf dem Hirn. Slows down, starts back up. The music of the Bach cantatas of this time are very rhapsodic in that way. They really just move in whatever direction they need to. They don't spend like five minutes all in one thing. If 30 seconds need to be slow. They'll be slow. Then the text will move in a different direction and it'll go back to being fast. There's eventually a wonderful double fugue that happens. Yeah. And we call it a double fugue because it has two subjects. It has this one. And then right after it, comes in this one overlapping at the same time, really. And there it is, Alex, what you said, the ascending half-step motif. The thing that really is the motif of this cantata, I think, it really ties it together all the way back from the first movement. Yeah. Several half-steps ascending chromatically. Mm Mm-hmm. Another version of a nice, a nice double fugue from Bach is from the Mass in B minor, which is repurposed from something else, right? It's it's the one that he uses in the Gracias Agimus tv and also the Dona Nobis Pacem, which we looked at on uh, episode one. We and, did. The Dona Nobis Pacem yeah. is the most famous version of it, but really, um, Alex and I use. Alex, we've spoken about how we much prefer the text setting that is in the Gratias Agimus TV because it's a double fugue and its two subjects get different words in right. that case. But then we also have talked about that the whole thing is actually from a German from, language cantata. Yeah. So there's a lot going on there. <laughs> but like you said, Alex, double fugue is really something special and Bach's early cantatas often had them. He was really showing off his skill that he was good at at a young age writing fugues and double fugues especially and if you're wondering what are we talking about with this terminology um, you'll have to refer to a, an episode where we've talked about the fugue which did happen several times a couple of good examples are episode 20 where we talked about a fugue in a, another another early Bach cantata that's very tightly put together and also Alex you spoke about the credo from the mass in b minor which is a fugue as well that was episode 23 this is a double fugue Because it has two subjects, and they both are right in, right out of the gate. They're both there. So it's not just a fugue. It is a double fugue. Yeah. Another famous version of a double fugue that's not from Bach is Mozart from the Requiem, from Mozart Requiem, um, Kyrie Eleison, the second movement. Actually, I think it's just kind of segue off of the first movement, right? And it has the Kyrie Eleison as one of the subjects and the Christe Eleison as the second subject. So yeah. lord have mercy and then christ have mercy and as a composer when you write a double fugue the thing you have to do is make sure that those two subjects those two themes sound different and they sure do here right you have one that starts with this jumpy thing and then immediately goes off into this fast thing then the other one is that that miserably clawing up a half-step motif thing <laughs> yeah they all work perfectly together in counterpoint but that's not my moment (laughs) no no and i don't know if anyone got it right because we record these before that week but you might have got this one right because i think it was the most obvious but my moment for this last movement is the ending The cadence at the end. We've spoken about cadences. The cadence at the end is one that leaves leaves you hanging, doesn't it? Yes. In fact, um, Alex, you said, <laughs> I think you said, what? <laughs> That's what I did. Yeah. And then you said. I said, where's the next where's movement? the next part? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a half cadence, or it sounds like a half cadence. And this is totally something that Bach would never do in his later life, because it's kind of a... a it's On one hand, it's an experiment, but on the other hand, this is a flavor of musical modes of the old times, hundreds right. of years ago in the Renaissance period. Like we said when we had, like Alec said, our guest, Alec Maria, the violist who came on, we were talking about a particularly interesting note in the cello suite, and then Alec pointed out, well, is it really modern or is it really old? Maybe it actually sounds more like one of the ancient church modes, and that's why it sounds so strange in this context.
1: And I think, I think that's that, what it is. Yeah, I
0: think that's what it is. And, and like you mentioned, Christian, back in Brandenburg Concerto number three episodes, when we did all the movements of that for the second movement, which is just a short little, um, little cadence, it is just like this. It's a Phrygian half cadence, which means that it is similar to what we see here in the sense that if you listen to that bass, all it's doing is going up a half step and then back down really that's the going back down is the is the part that's that's key here Mm -hmm. and you would think that that being called a half cadence and the way that it lands it should then resolve up to like the tonic chord but what bach does here is that that is the tonic chord at the end so it's really weird to have a phrygian cadence I suppose if I was to if I was to categorize this, I would call it a Phrygian authentic cadence, like which was, which sounds wrong. But yeah. a Phryg- it's a it's an ending cadence of a piece. It's in the key that we're in, which is A minor. You would get this wrong on a composition exam if you wrote this. Like if the key, which is suggested heavily here, to get into a little bit of theory, the key is A minor here at the end. Though it gives us a Phrygian cadence in D minor. It should be going on should be moving on to another home Mm -hmm. chord and changing key or something. It doesn't, and because of that, it retains a wonderful, really ancient-sounding Phrygian mode, which is what that is named for anyway, that cadence, Phrygian half-cadence. And and if you listen to this again and listen to the bass movement, the second-to-last note in the bass is only a half-step above where it lands, so it's just a... B flat and then A, right? It just goes down just a little bit. And that's why it doesn't sound resolved because that second to last note is not supposed to be a half step above the tonic. That is not how it works. That's a phrygian mode and that doesn't work with major or minor. And that's why it's so weird. You know? Yeah, most most approaches to a low do is like ray do. Yeah. And this one approaches it in such a way that makes it sound like it's soul. Re, go there it wants to go le so do, but that's only just because of our more modern understanding and box understanding honestly he he would know um, of how major and minor music works but this isn't that it's just evoking the past yeah but either way it's so unusual in all of Bach's output it just sounds unresolved and it, it sound it reminds me of the um there's a middle part of that Goetz site one that has a similar unresolved thing, and that one sounds unresolved because it, because the instruments kind of float away and then they just disappear, and all you're left with one solo soprano singing the end of a little phrase. So that's a different reason why that sounds unfinished. But this this sounds unfinished for this reason. And then I also love the oboe, which does the same thing it did uh, earlier in the mm-hmm. cantata, where it jumps up to the high A instead of resolving down to the C sharp. It's like a really similar figure that the oboe has here than that it had before also. And it's just, it's charming to me because it just keeps on subverting what I think it's going to do. It's its a very deliberate choice to end it this way because like the key asset of the power of this type of music, that is classical music, major and minor, things that are in a major or minor key, especially in this era, is like a storytelling device that has a conclusion at the end. Right. Almost everything does have that kind of conclusion and almost all music of this time period did do that all until the 1800s where they started experimenting with stretching it and making it sound unresolved and stuff. But in this time period, you needed to end authentically at the end. And so to purposefully leave us hanging like that, definitely on purpose, and also in this case to evoke old music in order to musically set the Psalms, which is really, really old Hebrew poetry... I think is kind of a brilliant move. Yeah. And that last line that you're getting, the he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities, right? And that's that's really great to leave that open-ended. Yeah, it's looking forward. It didn't happen yet. Yeah. Israel sinned. Israel was bad. Israel is penitent. Israel needs to account for its sins, but it knows that the people know that they cannot do this themselves. They look for God. Out of the depths, they cry to God, and they know he will come through for them. But they wait, and at the end here, they still wait. So now, over the last weeks, we've taken some really good looks at this cantata, Aus der Tiefen rufe Ich Her zu dir. All five parts of it. So now let's just hear all those five moments back to back. From the first movement, While a bass line ascends in half-steps, each voice enters from the bottom up in whole steps in very tense, dissonant counterpoint on the words, I have cried unto thee, O Lord. In the second movement, A solo for the bass. Our moment is the remarkable offset rhythm in groups of little, in little groups of three, heard here on the word Firchte, feared, that thou mayest be feared. My moment from the third movement, a choral movement, is the gripping harmony that occurs with chained suspensions on the words, my soul doth wait, specifically the word wait. At the beginning of the fourth movement, the aria for the tenor, our moment is the interesting number of beats in this repeated bass line. Seven units of two beats before the bass line repeats itself. <laughs> Finally, our last movement, the moment is the very end, a striking cadence at the end that is left starkly unresolved, or maybe just sounds like ancient music. If this introduction to the cantata Aus der tiefen rufe ich her zu dir has inspired you to hear the whole thing, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe, then your podcast app will download the episodes automatically. We'd love to see your comments, and your questions, and your suggestions about what Moments of Bach we might cover next on our Facebook page, and our Instagram, and our website, a MomentofBach.com. Okay, so Alex, we've spent a two-episode mini-arc here talking about one cantata. What's next? What's next is another two-episode mini-arc, this one on the mass in B minor. We've spent a little time talking about that in past episodes. Well, really, we spent two whole episodes on it, episode one and then 23, but there's there's so much there and it's so rich. And I'd like to spend two episodes talking specifically about the Gloria part of the Mass in B minor, going over some stuff about Latin, going over some stuff about the, the orchestration, the way that Bach uses instruments in a really colorful way, and just moments that bring me joy in that work. Nice. Until next time, enjoy those moments.